Multiplication. I, uh, I cannot remember what grade I was in when we started working on multiplication. But I do remember this toy. Anybody remember this toy? This was, this was cool. This was high tech. Um, I, I am not that old, but this was pretty high tech when I was a kid. Uh, if you're not familiar with this toy, um, each, and I know it's kind of blurry up on the screen, each box has a, a multiplication problem, and it starts with the ones and then and goes across to one times nine, and then it comes down one times one, two times one, three times one. And so, so you cover all the basic multiplication, and when you push the button, you see the answer behind it. These little buttons that move, and you see the answer behind it. And I remember that toy, uh, and that being pretty cool. And, and it really did help me learn to multiply, because if you use it correctly, you're not supposed to look until you've answered the question. You're not supposed to press the button until you've already made your, uh, your guess as to what the answer is there. But it helped me learn to multiply, and in a lot of situations, multiplication uh, is a good thing. It's the goal, uh, even more so than, than addition. For instance, if you open a standard bank account uh, that does not accrue interest, and you put $5 in it each week, you simply add $5 each week, and, and each week you put $5 more in it, and that's it. If you open a bank account that does accrue interest, let's say monthly, without you doing anything, you gain whatever you have in the bank, multiplied by the interest rate. And you can still add when you have money to do so, but the multiplication happens no matter what. It's a positive thing. Multiplication is the goal of the church, too. If I reach one person for Jesus, if I share Jesus with one person and they come to believe in Him and follow Him, the kingdom has been increased by one soul. And then if I go and through God's power, I help to reach another uh, that's addition. It's a good thing, but it's just addition. But if both of those that I've helped to reach go and reach two more, that's multiplication in the kingdom of God. And so for the next three weeks, this idea, multiply, is what we're going to talk about. And specifically, we're going to hit some keys, uh, some key ideas that when we put them into play, when we put these into action, multiplication is much more likely to occur. And so today we'll start with a, a biggie. Uh, there's a reason that we're talking about this. Uh, and this statement, it really could uh, be a starting point for about any series of teaching that we share. And in that statement is this, that, that God must be first. You know, you've heard it said, first things first. Well, first needs to be God. And we don't spend a ton of time in the Old Testament these days, yet it's still extremely valuable to our understanding of God and how he wants us to live. Sometimes we want to like kind of skip over the Old Testament. We say, well, all the good stuff's in the New Testament, and Jesus did away with so much stuff in the Old Testament anyway, and what's the point? Well, there's still a lot we can learn there. And so that's where we're going to start scripturally in this series. In fact, before we dive into a passage in Exodus, I want you to listen to what was written in the New Testament about the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11 says this, These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us, those of us who live at the end of the age. When Paul wrote those words, he was saying, listen, these are not to be discarded. This is for our benefit. There are lessons to be learned from all of Scripture. And so in Exodus chapter 13, um, all the way towards the front of your Bible, we read this, this conversation, if you will, between God and Moses. Beginning in verse 1, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Dedicate to me every firstborn among the Israelites. 
The first offspring to be born of both humans and animals belong to me. You very simply put, what God was saying is, I desire your first and your best. He required this of his people in Moses' day, that their firstborn animals must be given or sacrificed to God, that their firstborn children must be dedicated to God, that, that God gave them everything they had, and he simply was asking for the first and the best back. Now, what you, you, you may have heard this before, but what you may not know is this. When it comes to the, the firstborn animal back then, if your firstborn animal was considered a clean animal, you sacrificed it to the Lord. But if it was considered unclean for any reason, and they had a whole list of reasons that an animal could be unclean, but if it was unclean for any reason, you had to sacrifice a clean animal in its place. There are pages and pages of Scripture that explain all this stuff. I don't, I don't, we don't want to get bogged down in the details. But maybe you've heard it said that everything in the Bible points to Jesus. This idea pretty obviously does. Sacrificing a clean animal in the place of an unclean one. You and I are unclean, and Jesus, who was obviously clean, was sacrificed in our place. This idea goes all the way back to the Old Testament. God wanted their first, but it also needed to be the best. And so, so if an animal was unclean, it needed a replacement, a substitute, if you will. And for us, I think what we need to understand is this isn't just a, a, a nice tie-in. The truth is, Jesus was the only sacrifice that was going to work for us. Only he is unclean. You know, we are absolutely uh, called to give ourselves to God. That's something we're absolutely called to do. But we are not the first and we are not the best. We are not the clean. We are, we are quite dirty, in fact, and sinful. And you say, well, God, God desires our best. Whatever that is for us, that's what he desires. And, and that's, that's true. But our best couldn't come close to saving us. And yet we're saved. Not just by a better sacrifice, but by a perfect sacrifice. And, and here's the thing that becomes more clear to me the more that I study God's word. If God made that happen, if God, knowing that we were unclean, said, I, here, here's a clean sacrifice in their place to save them. If God made a way for us where there was no other way, and, and there was no other way, the least that we can do is give him our first and our best. Even though in light of who God is and what he did for us, our first and our best isn't really all that impressive. It's what he desires of us. And so I, I think it's our responsibility to respond by giving him our first and our best. So that's kind of where we're going here. And so you start with the Old Testament idea of giving the firstborn animals to God. And then let's add another layer here. There are people who don't understand why we meet on Sunday other than that we've always met on Sunday. It's Sunday I go to church. It's Sunday I go to church. It's Sunday again I go to church again. It's Sunday again I go to church again. And it's tied to the idea of Sabbath, the day of rest, but it's also tied to the day that Jesus rose from the grave. You talk to different people, you're going to get different reasons that we meet on Sunday. But for me, the way that I feel about it, what it comes down to is this. It's the start of the week. The first of the week, if you will. It actually throws me off. I bought a calendar for my office. I'm trying to get more organized with my time. And the calendar starts on Monday. Does that throw you off when you see that? People, I don't know why they've started to do that so much, but calendars often start on Monday now. 
And I didn't realize it was going to start on Monday. And so I'm all thrown off about what day it is. Because for me, the week starts on Sunday. And so we give our first, we give our best, we give God the first day of the week. Beginning each and every week together with God's people. See, the idea of giving God the first and the best, it's repeated over and over again throughout Scripture. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, it says, As you harvest your crops, bring the very best of the very first harvest to the house of the Lord your God. Your best and your first. In Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then He will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good wine, your first and your best, and you'll be rewarded. In the book of Joshua, when, when God's people are getting ready to overtake the city of Jericho, a city with large walls, heavily fortified city, God gives them this instruction in Joshua 6.19, everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into His treasury. Jericho was, this, Jericho was this first city that they conquered, and God wanted the best of the first. It's, it's a repeated idea. And then maybe one of the most well-known stories about giving your first and your best to God happened all the way back in Genesis. Adam and Eve, God's, God's first human creations, had two sons to start out with. First Cain and, and later Abel. This is completely random, um, but I know plenty of people named Adam, and even a few Eves, but I have met very few, if any, people named Cain or Abel. It just, it's, it's always been really interesting to me as I read through Scripture, some of the names, uh, Bible names that have lived on. How, how many Davids do you know? How many Matthews and Marks and, and Johns do you know? But I've never met a Jehoshaphat. I've never met a Zerubbabel, although that would be super fun. I don't, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I missed the boat on some of my kids. But this story is about, is about Cain and Abel, and maybe the story, maybe, maybe what happened in their lives has to do with why we don't carry on their names. But this story is all about their offerings to God. In Genesis chapter 4, reading in verse 2, later she, she being Eve, gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now on the surface, this might seem unfair. Because if you're going to bring your first and your best, that, that starts by not waiting. So if you're a farmer and you want to do something with your best crops, you have to do it at harvest time because harvest time is when you get your first and your best. If you're a shepherd, your best is your firstborn. And you see both Cain and Abel here do fine with the bring the first thing. But if we look more closely, it's clear that Abel's offering is described in Genesis as the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. It is very clear to me that Abel brought the first and the best. 
It's no wonder that God accepted his gift. He, he, he did what God asked of him. But Cain, Scripture tells us that Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. And I believe if it was the best of his crops, that that's the way it would be recorded here in Genesis. Now it's also recorded that, that, that Cain wasn't very happy about it, that he looked dejected. Well, he should. His gift was rejected by God. Have you ever been rejected? We probably have all been in some way at some point in our lives, some more than others, but my guess is all of us have been rejected. Back when I was a teenager, I, I asked out a lot of girls. I'll, I'll admit that to you. I asked out a lot of girls. I, I interpreted having a girlfriend as the most important social status sign you could have. If you had a girlfriend, you were in a, in a much different class than if you didn't. And so I asked out a lot of girls, and, and I got rejected a lot. I'll just admit that to you. And it was painful. It was painful. We, we understand rejection on many different levels, and it's always painful. Before we moved here to Winchester um, almost seven years ago, I had sent out quite a few resumes. I was looking, looking to move on from the church where we were serving. And so I sent out resumes, had some interviews. Uh, we, we drove to the absolute middle of nowhere in Kentucky for an interview, met with some of the nicest people that I've ever met, but I knew that it wasn't a good fit for me, and we came to a mutual understanding that it wasn't a good fit. We went all the way to Tennessee, where I had an interview at a church where one of my best friends from high school just happened to be one of the key players on their search committee, and, and he basically guaranteed me the job. He said, if you want this job, it's yours. And I felt like the interview went well, and time went by, and time went by, and, and I had interviewed here at New Life, and I had all but decided to take this position, but he had promised me this great position. And, and quite a while later, that church sent a form letter, not personal at all, to tell me that they had eliminated me from consideration. And even though I was coming here, and I already knew that I was coming here, and I knew that it was the right choice, even in that moment, that, that rejection was painful. And no matter how it comes, when we are rejected, it is not a good thing. We don't go, hey, that was, that was good, I'd like to do that again. Let me, let me get rejected a little more often, no, no matter what it looks like. We don't like it. And yet no rejection that I've ever faced has caused me to react the way that Cain did. In Genesis chapter 4, continuing in verse 6, God, God speaks to Cain. He says, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if what you do is right. Now, now pay attention to what he said. You will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. It says, one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother, Abel, and killed him. And we say, wow, <laughs> overreaction. And we say, talk about jealousy. But God makes it clear that all this could have been avoided if Cain had done what was right. Tra track with me here for just a moment. Are there different kinds of rejection? If we're honest, could we admit that there have been times when we were rejected and it was absolutely not our fault? 
Yet if we're really being honest, wouldn't we also then have to admit that there have been times when we've been rejected and it absolutely was our fault? We deserved to be rejected? In middle school, I desperately wanted to be on the basketball team. I know, obviously, I look like a baller. Um, And so both years of middle school, I said, I'm trying out for the basketball team. I'm going to make this team. Again, it was a social status thing. I really struggled with that in my teenage years. All the guys I thought were cool were playing basketball, so I was going to play basketball. But what didn't work about it is, is that for the most part, the only time of year I picked up a basketball was right around tryouts. So I tried out in seventh grade. I didn't make it. And probably for the next two or three weeks, I practiced basketball every day. I said, by next year at this time, I'm going to make the basketball team. That practice really did only last two or three weeks. I had great intentions of practicing every day, but, but my practicing didn't last. And so when eighth grade basketball tryouts came, I tried out again. And again, I got rejected. But how mad could I get when I didn't really try very hard? Here's the thing. God didn't, didn't just like reprimand Cain here. He didn't say, you did the wrong thing. He didn't even say, you would have been accepted if you did this. He said, you will be accepted if you do what is right. You know what I read there? And I never caught this until this week when I'm reading through this scripture. That lends to the idea that God wasn't done with Cain. You will be accepted if you do what is right. This tells me he was going to give Cain more opportunities to give offerings to God. You know, God does warn him. He warns him that this pattern will not turn out well for him if he doesn't clean it up. But he says, you will. You will be accepted. There is still that possibility for Cain. And yet Cain, unable to handle the rejection and the jealousy in himself, killed his brother. Here's why I think this story matters to our discussion today. I think sometimes we give God some of ourselves. Some of our some of our time, some of our money, some of our resources, some of our energy, some of our attention, some of our week even. And then we pat ourselves on the back. We say, oh, I did good this week. Nowhere in this story of Cain and Abel does it say that Cain's offering was of poor quality. Nowhere does it say that it was his leftovers or the crops that didn't quite grow to maturity or something he couldn't use for something else. It just wasn't the first and the best of his crops. And nowhere does it say that Cain brought his offering sheepishly or with trepidation. He didn't hesitate. He wasn't embarrassed by his own offering. It doesn't say that. He doesn't seem to be afraid of what God would say about his offering because he thought he was doing enough. And we do that. We high-five ourselves when we make it to church. We pat ourselves on the back when we pass a couple of dollar bills out the window to the guy on the side of the road holding a sign. We convince ourselves that we've done all we can do for someone when we pray for them. Now, now I don't want to talk down the importance of prayer. Absolutely, we should be praying for each other, but I think sometimes we give ourselves a pass. We say, I, I prayed for you, that's really all I can do. Eh, is it? I struggle with that one. Are any of those things our best, those things that we pat ourselves on the back for? Is making it to church 
putting God first in that way once a week, is that really our best? Is a couple dollar bills out the window to the guy who really does seem to be in need, is that really our best or, or is there more we could do? Is prayer really all we can do for that person or is there a way we could help meet a tangible need in their life? Like I said, I, I struggle with this so much. Because I want to feel good about what I've done for God and what I've given to God and what I've done in His name. But I think if I have to be honest, then I really want to be honest with you this morning. If I have to look at this from God's perspective, and I think I probably should, I'm probably much more like Cain than I am like Abel. Because I give to God when I can or as much as I can or enough. And that goes for everything. Time. Resources, energy. If you've ever said, I, I just don't have time to pray, or, or I just don't have time to read my Bible, or man, I had a lot going on this week, so just didn't, didn't make it to church. We'll be there next week, though. Or we had, had a really big Saturday, so we just decided to sleep in on Sunday. You know, it's possible that you've never actually said any of those things. I'm not sure that I've ever actually said any of those specific phrases. But there have been days and weeks and seasons of my life that have clearly reflected those exact phrases. There have been times in my life when my life reflected God, and there have been times in my life when it reflected everything else and a little bit of God. If there was any time or energy or money or resources left for Him. That's so amazingly backwards. When I was in high school, we, uh, we did this thing a few times in our youth group. It was called a, a regressive dinner. And what we did was we traveled from house to house. Some folks in the congregation volunteered. We traveled from house to house, and we ate a, I believe it was, there were four stops, essentially a four-course meal backwards. I enjoy dessert, but there are meals, especially a four, we, we had a, I think we had like salads in one place, appetizers in another place, the main course, and then dessert, but we did it backwards. You know, there are times when you're eating a meal like that, and you know dessert's going to be great, and, and, and in this case, each person that volunteered was responsible for only the one part, so you know it's going to be good. Like, they only had to worry about dessert, so you know it's going to be a good dessert. There are times in a meal like that where... I'm really looking forward to dessert, but there's no room left. Unless it's jello, there's always room for jello. And so for the, I remember going to the regressive dinner, and we'd stop at the first place, and everybody, I mean everybody, would eat way too much dessert. Way too much dessert. And we got to the second house, and it was main course, and it was like, I'm already getting full. And we still needed to go have salads. And appetizers in, in, in the wrong way. It was, it was a lot of fun. But there's a reason dessert comes at the end. You're not supposed to eat that much of it. When things get in the wrong order, when things get backwards, it doesn't work. And what happens in our lives is, is we say, well, I got all this other stuff to do. And with the time that I have left, with the energy that I have left, it, it's like that space in our stomach that's left. If we do things in the wrong order, we end up eating too much dessert. 
We end up not having time for God. We end up not having energy for God. We end up not having resources for God. And we give God what we do, and we say, well, that was my best. No, that's what I had left. There's a difference. There's a difference. No matter who you are or what life situation you're in, God simply asks for your first and your best. That's what we need to give. In Mark chapter 12, there's this story. Beginning in verse 41, it says this, Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given much more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. She put what she gave to God ahead of her basic needs. I can almost guarantee you the rich that were giving the large amounts of money had already spent their first and the best, their best. They just had that much. That there was what would to us seem like an impressive amount left, but to them was really just a drop in the bucket. See, it's not, it's not on us to judge each other for what we give to God, our time, our energy, our resources. It's not on us to judge that. God knows where your heart is. What matters is that what God has asked of us is our first and our best. And in the moments where that's not what we're giving him, we, we need to adjust that. We need, we need to make the change. We need to realize and acknowledge that patting ourselves on the back for the, the little that we do for God, it's really not doing us any good. We need to hold ourselves to a higher standard because of what God did for us. Go back to what I said at the beginning. If God made a way where there was no other way for us to be saved, when we don't deserve it at all, if God asks for our first and our best, that's what we need to give him. Because he gave everything for us. Let's pray. God, we take for granted the blessings that you give us. We find ourselves not so much in need, but in want a lot of the time. But you've given us all we, we truly have to have. When you sent Jesus to this earth, you, you gave us all we needed. You saved us when we couldn't save ourselves. You, you made a way where there was no way. You, you, you took care of sin that we had no way of taking care of on our own. You transferred the punishment that we deserve for our sins onto him. You gave us the most amazing gift, the gift of grace. We deserve death and you gave us life. And yet we struggle every day to give you our first and our best. 
We struggle to not just let you be an afterthought in our lives. We struggle to put you first. We struggle to, to, to pray. We, ha- we have the ability to communicate with the God of the universe, and we struggle with that. We struggle to want to open your word. We have your word in front of us, available to us, and we struggle to want to crack it open. God, help us to, to keep in the forefront of our minds what it is that you did for us. God, help us to give our lives back to you. God, even though our first and our best pales in comparison to what you did for us, I pray that that's what we would offer you every single day. Help us to focus as we continue in our service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.